Good morning, Christ Prez. Last week, we heard an announcement. God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. It's good news. It, it's not something that you make true by believing it. It's just a declaration that something has happened and it changes everything. This is not like the announcement of your favorite team winning the World Series. I mean, when you hear that kind of announcement, you feel good about it for a while, but then pretty quickly you go back to living your life as usual. It's good news when your team wins, but it's not the kind of good news that changes much. But this announcement about God's reconciliation of the world to himself in Christ is meant to change everything. It's meant to radically transform our lives, to turn them upside down. And yet Paul is concerned. It seems that many of his friends in Corinth are living exactly like they have always lived. Nothing is different. The shape of their lives is unchanged. And so Paul is appealing to them, open wide your hearts. Let this gospel, this good news of what God has done for us in Christ, uh, in, in Christ um, really change you. And I wonder, what about you and me? I mean, has the gospel changed you? Has it changed us? Is the gospel changing us, transforming us? The good news of what God has done for us in Christ compels us to make some very clear decisions about how we are going to live. So let's look at the shape of Paul's challenge. He would have us recognize the risk. He would have us realize the cost. And he would have us really commit. Okay? Recognize the risk, realize the cost, and then really commit. So first, recognize the risk. Look again at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Did you hear it? The risk. Do you recognize it? See, the risk is that now that God has reconciled you to himself in Christ, you would go on living as if nothing has changed, as if you aren't reconciled. You'll just keep living according to the same old habits and patterns that you've always lived by. See, for Paul, that amounts to receiving God's grace in vain. He says, we urge you, don't do that. Do not receive God's grace in vain. See, he's worried for the Corinthian Christians because they have heard this amazing good news again and again. I mean, they have had Paul himself as a guide, probably the greatest theologian teacher to ever live, someone who actually met the risen Jesus. And yet it's hard to distinguish them from others who haven't received the gospel. They're living exactly like everyone else. Nothing has changed. They have the same priorities, the same ambitions, the same Corinthian dream as their pagan neighbors. Paul sees this as receiving God's grace in vain. You have received all this, and yet the gospel has done nothing to change your life. What about us? You know, in terms of access to the gospel, we have a big advantage over the early church. We live in a society where we can freely gather for worship. We can have the Bible on our phones. We have churches on every corner. We have more Christian resources than the Corinthian Christians could ever have imagined. But the risk is no less great for us. I mean, it's possible that we would receive God's grace in vain, receive it without really receiving it, hear the good news without living on the basis of it. Now, I want to be clear about what this means, to receive God's grace in vain. It doesn't mean to reject the gospel outright. I mean, I'm guessing not many of us would flatly reject the good news about Jesus. 
And, and neither would the Corinthian Christians reject the good news about Jesus in that way. I mean, remember, Paul is addressing the church. He's talking to people who have heard the good news, who understand the good news, and who even believe the good news, but they receive it without it having any impact in their lives. In vain means without purpose or, or result. Philip Hughes writes this, he, he writes, quote, For them to receive the grace of God in vain meant that their practice did not measure up to their profession as Christians, that their lives were so inconsistent as to constitute a denial of the logical implications of the gospel, namely, and in particular, that Christ died for them so that they might no longer live to themselves, but to his glory. Close quote. It's a serious risk, family. It's so easy to just be a churchgoer or to get your kids baptized or to listen to a message week after week and sing songs and and pray prayers week after week. To think of yourself as a Christian to that extent, but then to never actually live the life of someone who follows Jesus, to never actually let the gospel transform you. When it comes to our habits and our priorities and our values and our ambitions, our character, our flaws, our emotional life, our mental life, things stay the same. We can be like the rocky soil in Jesus' parable where the seed falls, but it never takes root. Or like the thorny soil that chokes out the life of the seed. The gospel never actually produces change in us. We can basically be exactly the same person we would have been if Jesus wasn't in our life at all. Is that you? See, that's the risk. Paul says, don't receive God's grace in vain. Well, okay, we might say, we don't want to do that. We don't want to receive God's grace in vain. I guess I need to start taking all of this much more seriously. But wait, Paul says, before you do, you need to realize what you're getting into. In this next section, he shows us what it really looks like to yoke ourselves to Jesus, the crucified Messiah, and to live on the foundation of what God has done for us in him. And so he's saying, realize the cost. See, the Corinthians lived in a money-drenched, success-driven culture, and they loved that stuff. They loved popularity and fame and wealth and power. They believed in Jesus, but then they went on living just like everyone else. And Paul is showing them that if they really want to follow a crucified Jesus, it means a life that is totally turned upside down and inside out from the world they are used to. And so first, he shows us that a life following Jesus means enduring many troubles, many troubles. Look again at verses four and five. But as servants of God, Paul writes, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. You see, some of these troubles are kind of general, like afflictions, hardships, calamities. Some of the troubles might be at the hands of others who are hostile to the good news about Jesus beatings, imprisonments, riots. Some of them might be troubles that we take upon ourselves voluntarily for the sake of serving God. Our labor, our work, our sleepless nights, sometimes going without food. But whatever the case, Paul makes it clear that the road before us, it won't be an easy one. It won't be a smooth one. I mean, remember, family, Jesus isn't leading us around trouble, but through it. So Paul reminds us of that. Second, though, Paul reminds us that in the midst of the trouble, God's grace abounds. 
Look at verses six and seven. He continues, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You see, in the midst of the trouble, the Holy Spirit is with us and for us to give us exactly what we need. You know, our tendency is to think that times of trouble are a sign of God's absence. We experience trouble and we begin to wonder if God really loves us. And Paul seems to think almost the opposite. Paul expects trouble and he experiences trouble and he goes through it eager to endure and to receive God's grace right smack dab in the middle of it. Well, it was the same with Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' baptism? And do you remember what happens right after his baptism? The way Mark recounts it is especially striking. He writes this, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So let's pause there and ask these questions. I mean, does it sound like God is for Jesus? Does it sound like the father loves the son? It does, right? I mean, and and isn't this what we want? I mean, doesn't this come pretty close to our heart's deepest desire to be so loved and affirmed by God? See, that's what Jesus receives in his baptism, unimaginable love and affirmation. And then we come to the very next verse. The spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. So just reflect on the pairing of of those two verses. God's infinite love and pleasure followed immediately by trouble, by being cast out into the wilderness. See, we wonder, why do we go through trouble? Well, based on these verses, we can rule out a couple of wrong answers. I mean, one common wrong answer is that God doesn't really love us. That's why we go through trouble. We go through trouble because God doesn't really care about us all that much. Well, if we take these verses seriously, that can't be right. Because clearly God loves Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately the spirit spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. Well, an even more common answer is that God is displeased with us. That's why we experience trouble. And so he's using the trouble as a kind of punishment. We imagine God saying, yeah, you're my child, and yeah, I love you, but you've really blown it. And so now you have to spend some time in your room facing the corner. Go to timeout. Go to the wilderness. But no, if we take these verses seriously, that can't be right either, because God is very pleased with Jesus. This is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. You see, the trouble isn't a punishment. Jesus goes to the wilderness and it isn't because God doesn't love him and it isn't because God is displeased with him. He goes because this is where God's grace abounds for him. He goes because this is where God's power is made perfect in his weakness. Remember in the wilderness, he's weak, but he's empowered by the spirit and he's sustained by the word of God. And Paul is showing us the same thing in our passage. He's saying, if you follow Jesus, your life will be like his. 
A life following Jesus will be full of trouble, but God's grace abounds in the trouble. And then third, in case we still miss it, Paul emphasizes that this is not an either-or kind of thing. It's not hardship or joy. It's not pain or glory. It's not suffering or life. It's both and. Listen again to verses 8 and 9. He writes, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as, ha- as having nothing, yet possessing everything. See, do you hear how it's both and? Almost paradoxically both and. It's, it's a dirge that's also a joyous dance. I mean, did you hear the dirge? We are treated as imposters, as unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing. And at the exact same time, the joyous dance. We are true well-known. We live. We're not killed. We're always rejoicing. We're making others rich, and we possess everything. See, family, it's not an either-or thing. It's a both-and thing. A life following the risen, crucified king is a life like this. It's crucifixion and resurrection. It's joy and sorrow all at once. It's power and weakness. Are you ready for this? The world tells you that life is all about avoiding pain and suffering and and going for success and money and fame and power and, and having your life on a trajectory that moves up and to the right. You can say you're a Christian and at the same time embrace that pattern, follow exactly the same pattern of everyone around you, trying to minimize pain and maximize pleasure just like everyone else. But to follow Jesus means to follow a crucified king who turns the values of the world upside down. Jesus leads us on the low road of humility, and that inevitably involves suffering. In you know, Soren Kierkegaard, he once told a parable about some thieves who broke into a jewelry store, and instead of stealing anything, they went around switching the price tags on all the items, so that what was really valuable now appeared to be cheap, and what was cheap appeared valuable. And the point is that something like this has happened with us Like our world's values are completely out of whack and our perception is skewed. See, the Corinthians experienced this. They were valuing power and success and prosperity and fortune and fame. They thought this is the stuff of real life. This is the stuff worth living for. And in the same way, we tend to value what is cheap and overlook what is really worth pursuing. Well, God's kingdom comes breaking in And as it does, it corrects the price tags. It flips um, everything upside down and turns it all inside out. To follow Jesus is to live on the basis of the corrected tags, to stop chasing after the worthless stuff, and to start living for the things that are really valuable. So it means being willing to reject the mold of the world and to follow in the way of the crucified king. Family, realize the cost There will be tremendous trouble, but in it and through it all, joy beyond measure. Okay, so we know the risk. We've counted the cost. Now what? Commit. Behold, Paul writes, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. See, there is a decision that must be made. 
and it must be made again and again, and it must be made right now. I mean, this present moment is always the time to get off the fence and to yoke yourself to the crucified king. And so Paul ends with a call to holiness. Listen again. He writes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Well, this is a well-known passage that has often been misapplied. I mean, it's been used by some to justify separating from Christians who have different beliefs. It's been used by others to justify a refusal to associate with people who aren't following Jesus. But Paul really means something else entirely. And we can know this simply by paying attention to the context. I mean, all of the imagery here relates to idol worship. We know that idolatry was an issue for the Corinthian Christians from... uh, 1 Corinthians, there uh, Paul writes about eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. Well, here, apparently some of the Corinthian Christians were continuing to go to pagan temples for worship, even as they were gathering with the church to worship Jesus. Paul is using an analogy to say, guys, that doesn't work. You can't stay on the fence. You can't be in two marriage beds. You can't say you're a Christian and give your heart to a false God. You can't follow Jesus and also follow the practices of the world, you've got to commit. Now is the time. You must decide, am I going to be unequally yoked? Or am I going to stick with Jesus, worship him alone, and center my life around him? He's saying, resolve to live your life to please him, to bring your life into alignment with his kingdom, to stop living against the grain of your identity, but rather to embrace the good news and live on the basis of it. And so he ends with this stirring exhortation. He writes, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You know, holiness is a very churchy word and often comes across as a negative word in our culture. We use the word holy almost as an insult, as in, you know, she's so holier than thou. To to be holy is to be like condescending and superior. And at best, people maybe think of a holy person as someone who is really good at keeping all the rules. But look, in in light of what Paul is saying, holiness is not about keeping all the rules. It's about devotion. It's about um, an attitude of the heart that says to God, I'm wholly yours. I'm, I'm devoted to you. Use me for your purposes. It means putting your whole life under God's authority and saying, I belong to you. So holiness is is really a relational word. If you say to someone, hey, you can have my house. And then then, so they, they move in thinking that the house is theirs. But then it turns out that you've actually kept the entire second floor to yourself. And you tell them, yeah, you can't come up here. Well, you're not really giving that person your house. I mean, as long as you claim possession of a part of it, you haven't really submitted the house to the ownership of another. Holiness means you say, I'm giving you the whole house. I take my hands off my life. I give you the rights to every floor, to every room in my house. Come in. It's yours. It belongs to you. Paul is saying, do this. 
do this with Jesus. He's saying it's time for you to get off the fence and to give your life wholly to God. Now, you might wonder, why would I want to do this? Because God demands it? Because God is a heavy-handed judge who is requiring obedience? No. Look what the text says. Since we have these promises, be holy. See, Paul doesn't say, be holy so that you can get the promises. No, you have the promises. You have the acceptance. You have the grace. You have it all. You have been reconciled to God in Christ. Now live your life in response to what God has already given to you. See, Paul grounds our commitment to God in God's prior commitment to us. He shows that the reason we strive to be holy is not to get God's approval, but because we already have it. In Christ, God has made his dwelling among us and walked among us. In Christ, God has made us his. In Christ, we have been made God's sons and daughters, and we're bound to him forever. You know, we sing that song, Love So Amazing. So divine demands my soul, my life, my all. In view of who God is and what God has done for us, there's only one response that makes any sense. Get off the fence. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Give your whole self to God as he has given his whole self to you. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.